In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Several weeks ago, we celebrated a watershed moment in the ministry of Jesus. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus began to peel back layer after layer of reality and show his divine glory and majesty to the disciples. As he descended that mountain, the Gospels record what his explicit intentions were. The Gospels tell us that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. Jesus began the literal walk towards a confrontation that he knew would cost him his life. Luke 13, our Gospel text for this morning, is a portion of that walk towards Jerusalem. Everything that's said in this chapter has to be understood in that context. Because here's the thing, if you don't understand Luke 13 in that context, context, if you isolate this chapter from the other chapters around it, then Luke 13 begins to sound very different. On its own, Luke 13 can sound like the philosophical musings of Jesus, where he's discussing why disasters and calamity happen, where he's discussing why bad things seem to happen to innocent people. And while those kinds of questions are certainly legitimate and there's nothing wrong with asking them, I don't think those questions are the real story in our gospel reading. Here's why. If the point of Luke 13 is to provide a divine explanation on why innocent pilgrims are killed in a synagogue and why buildings collapse, then you would expect the answer Jesus gives to address and explain those very questions, right? But is that what happens in these verses? Does Jesus give a lengthy explanation on why tragedy befalls otherwise innocent people? Well, let's look at the text. Look in Luke 13, starting in verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans, because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. These people asked Jesus if those slaughtered by Pilate died because of their great sinfulness. And the complete answer of Jesus was one single word, no. Jesus doesn't discuss the fallen world, the nature of evil, nothing about free will, about God's sovereignty. He offers no further explanation at all, just a one word answer to an incredibly deep question, no. If these verses are recorded in order for us to understand why bad things happen to good people or why tragedy strikes at random, then the answer of Jesus should have been more than just one word. But it wasn't. So what's going on here? What are these nine verses really about then? Well, I think we get a clue to the point of these verses by what Jesus says just after his one word response. Look again at the gospel text and read what Jesus says immediately after his one word answer, no. He says this, repent or you will perish just as they did. I think those words are the key to understanding what Jesus is getting at here and here's why. A few verses just before our gospel text in Luke chapter 12, Jesus said this, I came to cast fire on the earth and would it were that it would already be kindled I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Now guys, let's call it. No one you've ever met has those verses as their life verse, not one. (laughs) Jesus sounds like he's trying to pick a fight, doesn't he? 
You know why it sounds that way? Because that's exactly what he's trying to do. Jesus made clear to everyone around him that day that his arrival on earth wasn't a friendly visit. It was an invasion. And the kingdom that he was building was a kingdom that was set against the kingdoms of this earth. Jesus wasn't here to play nice. He was here to pick a fight and then fight to the death. He was here to conquer darkness and reclaim everything that was lost in the fall. Jesus was calling out every place of sin and death and the whole creation and telling them straight, your days are numbered. Jesus was here to set all things straight and in order, and as he walked towards Jerusalem, he proclaimed that the justice and judgment of God were coming with him. It is in that context that this very conversation in Luke 13 happens. The people look at him and they say something like, hey Jesus, those pilgrims that Pilate slaughtered, were they killed because they're a part of this judgment you're just talking about? And Jesus answers them and says, no, no they're not. Neither were the people that were crushed by that tower in Siloam. But then Jesus adds this, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus was saying something like, those people killed by Pilate are not an example of the judgment I'm talking about. The judgment I'm talking about is still on the way. And if you repent, you can escape it. But if you fail to repent, then the judgment of God will fall upon you, and you will perish no different from those people slaughtered in the synagogue and the ones crushed in the tower. Now, time and time again, Jesus tells people that if they don't repent, then they're eventually going to perish. Jesus routinely told people that they needed to repent because one day, sooner or later, death would come for them. Statements like those are fairly ordinary for Jesus. But I can't find one other example in the entirety of the Gospels where Jesus seems to describe how a group of people will die if they don't repent. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You will all die in the same exact way. That statement was a real head-scratcher for me. I understood what he was saying. I just didn't understand why Jesus was saying it. If repentance before death is the point, why is the manner of death relevant at all? I think Jesus answers that question with the parable of the fig tree. I think this parable explains the first five verses and does so in astounding ways. In the parable starting in verse 6, Jesus says there's a fig tree that's been fruitless for three years. There's a conversation on whether or not this unfruitful fig tree should be cut down. But before the decision is made to cut it down, the fig tree would receive one last chance. Everything it could possibly need to bear fruit would be given to it. Nothing would be withheld from it. So if it failed to bear fruit after that, then the tree could be cut down and removed from the vineyard. Every single person who heard this parable would have made several immediate connections. Of all the trees, of all the bushes and flowers, of all the things in the world Jesus could have picked, he picked a fig tree. Why? Well, it turns out that Jesus had a reason. Israel is often symbolized and associated with a fig tree. Starting in the book of Genesis and continuing all the way through to the book of the Revelation, the association of Israel and the fig tree are unmistakable. And so as soon as Jesus brought the fig tree up in this parable, every Jew within hearing distance would have understood the connection. Israel had been rooted in the land. It had been protected and cared for. Israel had been stewarded and loved, and yet she was still unfruitful. 
and there was no excuse for it. Israel was unfruitful and had been so for a while now, and God could have cut her down then and there, but he didn't. In an act of supreme mercy and patience, in an attempt to foster the fruitfulness of Israel, God would pull out all the stops. The days of seeking God on mountaintops or in temples in Israel, those days were over. The enfleshed son of the father was now walking the streets of Israel. He was speaking with people face to face. Can you imagine a better environment for spiritual growth and fruitfulness than for the enfleshed eternal God to live in your town and to walk your streets? Time and time again in Israel, you would, you would have this, this, this forgetfulness. And what seems to be happening in the ministry of Jesus is that Israel is given that proverbial extra year everything that was being done for Israel to bear fruit, everything God could possibly do for Israel, he was doing, and he was doing it now in the flesh. But we know how that story ends. Was Israel fruitful even after all God had done for them? No. No, they were not. Even after all God had done for Israel, Israel remained unfruitful Anyway, and just like in the parable of the fig tree, an unfruitful Israel would be cut down. Israel didn't accept Jesus as their king or Messiah. They didn't accept his authority or his claims. Many in Israel did not repent and follow Jesus because in their opinion, Jesus failed to address the most pressing issues of the day. Jesus was constantly talking about loving your enemies and blessing those who cursed you. He was spending time with sinners, with prostitutes, with tax collectors. He never seemed to speak anything negative about the Romans, and he couldn't stop bad-mouthing the Pharisees. Many in Israel wrote Jesus off, not because his theology was wrong, not because his miracles weren't astonishing, but because Jesus opposed their political and philosophical claims. And if Jesus were the real Messiah, he wouldn't be opposing their interests, the interests of everyday hardworking Israelis. If Jesus were the Messiah, he would be helping them fight Rome. Jesus should be helping. He should be helping them kick every last sing single pagan Gentile out of the land. But he wasn't doing that at all. You see, the people were convinced that Jesus wasn't addressing the real problems of Israel. They were convinced that he was either indifferent or at worst opposed to most of the changes they thought would really make Israel a better place. He didn't seem to be interested in making Israel great again. And so the leaders of Israel murder Jesus and they persecute his followers. They go so far as to kill the very first bishop of Jerusalem in 62 AD. And then they chase every single stinking Christian out of Jerusalem. And with all of these dissenters finally gone, with all of the Israel haters out of the way, they can finally get down to making their move against Rome. And Israel erupts in a massive rebellion against the Romans, but they just would not take this anymore. They would not be ruled by these tyrants any longer. And to be completely honest, Israel had some success in the beginning. They didn't do all that bad. But Israel was outmatched. The military and economic might of Rome was too much. After years of fighting in 70 AD, the Romans besieged Jerusalem and they eventually laid waste to the holy city. 
They tore down its walls and homes, crushing anyone who got in their way. They destroyed the temple, not leaving one brick upon another. The Romans slaughtered over 100,000 Israelites and took almost that same number into slavery. After they were finished, Jerusalem was utterly devastated, unrecognizable. Like a fig tree, Israel had been cut down to its base, just as Jesus said it would. Both Christian and non-Christian histories report that the number of Christians in Jerusalem at its time of destruction was next to zero. And there's a variety of theories and explanation as to why this is, but whatever the case, it seems that those who called Jesus Lord, those who had repented, had escaped the devastation of Jerusalem, just like Jesus said they would. Those who did not follow Jesus, those who did not call him Lord, those who had not repented were slaughtered, just like pilgrims slaughtered by Pilate. They were crushed, just like the people crushed by the Tower of Siloam, just like Jesus said they would be. I think the first five verses of Luke 13 is Jesus telling the people of Jerusalem two things. First, repent. Second, a day of judgment is coming for you and this city and everyone in it. And if you think evil resides only in the Romans and you fail to repent of the evil that's in your own hearts, if you think you can fight the evils of Rome with sword and shield, if you think your struggle is only against flesh and blood, then you will die at the hands of the Roman soldiers. You will be crushed by walls and homes and temple bricks. Your deaths will be no different from those people Pilate killed, no different from those killed by the tower. I think Jesus knows full well that a day of destruction was coming for Jerusalem and the people's only chance of surviving it was not being there when it happened. And here's where I want to make the connection to us. Guys, I don't have to make an argument to you that the number of problems in our country and in our world are numerous. Their severity is great. The implications can be terrifying. Many of the problems are so complex and frustrating that it can make otherwise practical people reckless. We see it all the time. Whether it's race relations or inflation or COVID-19 or gender identity, sexual ethics, election integrity, foreign policy, fossil fuels, abortion, nuclear weapons, the Constitution, Republicans or Democrats, this list could go on and on. These are the issues dividing countries and communities and families and marriages. Each side being convinced that the other side is evil. Each side being convinced that those people must be stopped at all cost. We have entire channels and publications, whole organizations and movements that are dedicating themselves to exposing and stopping the evils of the other side. Our society is being conditioned to think that what's really wrong with our country is political movement X. What's really wrong with our country is political policy X. And if the other political party would just listen, or at least get out of our way, then we could finally institute the right policies and fix this whole mess right now. But I think if Jesus heard that, he would say, hey, that sounds familiar. People in Israel were a lot like that too. They were laser-focused on the political evils of Rome. They were laser-focused on the injustices of Caesar and Pilate, and so they formed a plan to address those issues. But their plan had a fatal flaw. 
the political evils of Rome were only surface level symptoms of something much, much deeper. A sickness whose real problem laid at the very bedrock of all mankind. The real problem with Rome was so deep and ingrained that political policy and military strategy had no chance of reaching it. The sickness of sin found in the human heart is the wellspring of every single evil and injustice you see in this world today. And so if you want to enact a plan that addresses the evil you see in the world, if you want to combat tyrants and injustice, then start by looking in your own heart. Start by repenting of your sin. Policies can't treat it. No military can defeat sin. It is treated by Jesus alone. And guys, don't mistake me. I'm not saying that having political positions is wrong. I'm not saying there aren't good and bad policies. I'm not saying there's not good and bad political philosophies. Of course there are. I'll go a step further. I think there are some policies and political philosophies that are at their base demonic. So don't think for a moment I'm saying political opinions don't matter. That's not my point. My point is that the evils of this world are rooted much, much deeper than political policy can hope to reach. So it's not only fruitless to focus mainly on the political, it's not what Christ has called us to do. The church is charged with bearing the life of God into a broken world, making disciples of all nations, and baptizing them in the name of the one who can treat the real problems of this world. That's our focus. That is our mission. Calling the whole world to repentance. Calling the whole world into the kingdom of Jesus. And if the church forgets that, if the church follows the example of the world and believes that the ballot box is more important than being on our knees in front of the Lord, if we play the political game no different than the world, hating our enemies instead of loving them, if we follow the example of Israel instead of the commands of Christ, if we aren't the very first people on our faces repenting for the evil we see in our own hearts and then praying for others to do the same, if that isn't us, who are we? If we become like that, if the church ceases to be what God has called us to be, it seems like we'd be a lot like Israel. A lot like a fig tree that ceased to bear figs. My brothers and sisters, if the evils you see in the world seem like they're reaching a fever pitch, you're not paranoid. You're exactly right. The enemies are at our gates and we seem besieged on all fronts. But if the church of the living Christ does not wage war like the world, we fight on our knees we fight on our faces, interceding before the throne of God. The church pushes back the darkness of this world, not with bayonets, not with public policy, not even with elections, but with the light and life of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, when the Christian repents of the sin found in their own hearts, they cause new light to break into this dark and sinful world. When the church is like that, when the church fights darkness with light, then the church is like a tree that's in full bloom, like a tree filled with good fruit. And I pray for the sake of this dark world that the church of Jesus is different from Israel. 
I pray that the church of Jesus always remembers we are called to bear the fruit of his light in this world. Amen.